0: Orientation, or attitude control, is one of the most essential parts of spacecraft design. Now, it's part of the spacecraft that can flow into the operation of almost every other subsystem on board, from helping orient solar panels and directional antenna systems, to providing the pointing and stability that payloads need to collect meaningful scientific data. A few common ways to do this on both small and large spacecraft alike is to use components such as reaction wheels. Uh, These are wheels that spin about either the x, y, or z axis, which cause the spacecraft to rotate, and magnetorquers, or torque rods, as you'll also hear it called. These are rods that produce a magnetic field, which interacts with the magnetic field of whatever planetary body the spacecraft is orbiting. This creates a torque, and thus orients the spacecraft. Another system that can be used to control attitude is a pulse plasma thruster, or PPT, as you'll hear it abbreviated. These essentially work by passing a large amount of power through a Teflon fuel source. As this happens, the Teflon heats up and produces plasma. Now, since electricity is flowing in a single direction through a magnetic material, this produces an electromagnetic force in a given direction, which serves as our thrust vector. Now, expand this to have electricity flowing through several different directions, and voila, you now have multiple thrust vectors to orient the spacecraft in any way that you need it to go. Now, this concept has led to a lot of really neat engineering challenges, and we will explore some of that in this episode. With that, hello space enthusiasts and welcome to another episode of the Art of Space Engineering, a podcast which explores the engineering behind spacecraft and payloads and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and today's episode focuses on the design and implementation of pulse plasma thrusters and how these can be integrated into CubeSats specifically. In addition to this topic just being really cool by itself, I was really excited about doing this episode in particular because all of the knowledge and experience that we'll explore comes from a student-led project at ASU. And many of the people who worked on this project were undergraduates. Now, personally, these kinds of experiences are the ones that I think are especially important to share because I've met a number of people who are very bright and interested in a lot of things. But when they start college, they have no idea what things you can actually even do at an undergraduate level, which is actually a lot. Now yes, you learn technical things in your degree in engineering, but really the core of your education is all about how to approach and solve problems. And if you're interested in something and willing to chase after an answer, there's a lot of that that you can do just at the freshman level. And as the years progress, you just learn more and get better at it. So that's why I think it's good to highlight student projects because it really helps to show what's out there and it can be hard to understand that otherwise. Given that, if anyone's listening to this who is going off to college soon or maybe within their first year, I hope it encourages you to really hit the ground running and go after what it is that you're passionate about. So, in this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Addie Cooler, Joe Mayer, and Omar Alavi, who are some of the key people involved in designing and prototyping a PPT for CubeSats as part of ASU's Sun Double Satellite Lab, or SDSL. I've talked about SDSL a few times, but if you're new to this podcast, SDSL is a student organization at ASU which explores various projects that are geared more towards spacecraft. I was part of this org throughout all of my undergrad, and it gave me literally everything that I have today. So SDSL is very near and dear to my heart, and I love sharing all of the cool stuff they do. These guys helped kickstart PPT six years ago and take it from kind of this floating idea that SDSL had for a while and turn it into an actual prototype that was being tested in vacuum chambers in our warehouse space. They also wrote a pretty dope paper on it, which was presented at the AIAA conference in 2018. And I'll link that below if you're interested in reading it. In this conversation, we'll talk about how PPTs work how they're designed for cubesats and the challenges that come with designing and testing a system like this, particularly in a university setting. We are also going to go into how the design changed over time, their collaboration with JPL on the project, and glorious war stories from their experience. We did lose Omar halfway through the interview due to internet issues, so the latter half of the conversation is just between Addy, Joe, and I. Nevertheless, it was still fun to reminisce on old memories from SDSL and chat more evolution of PPT. Now there is a part two to this interview that isn't technical, but may be something that incoming or current students will find insightful about the college experience in general. Uh, So part two is essentially just a discussion where we share all of our advice and personal experience on being in student projects and what it was like to do this while also balancing school. Now everyone's experience with this is unique and we certainly didn't do everything perfectly in college. But from talking to people over the years, I found that just hearing perspectives and experiences helps, whether you find something you agree with or not. So if you're interested in that type of discussion, check out part two, and I I do hope that you find it useful. And that pretty much covers everything for the intro. So without further ado, let's dive right into the engineering behind Pulse Plasma thrusters.
1: Yeah, I think Omar, Omar is, should be ready in a second. Joe, Joe is here, right? He's just not saying anything?
2: No, I'm not here. I left <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. It's
2: about time.
0: Good. We didn't want to do this with you anyway.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks. I see how it is.
0: <laughs> now this can be a proper interview.
2: Joe, where are you? Yeah. I am at home. In
1: our, What is that place?
0: Tell my everyone house? where you live, Joe. Yeah.
1: No, that's, <laughs> that's uh, What is it my called? Ad- or something? My
2: address is... <laughs> it's really far away, I know. What is it called? Uh, Woodell is the town. Woodell, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: There's a place in... Ar- Wait, no. Are you still... Yeah. Are you still in Arizona?
2: Yeah, it's West Valley. So, like, south of Surprise, the oh, other yeah. side of the 303. Oh. It's
1: like one of those places where if someone asks you where, you're, where you are, you have to say, I'm out of Woodell.
2: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even say Waddell. I just like, oh you know, we're surprises, we're south of that. So.
0: Yeah, I've only lived in Arizona my whole life. I never knew that there was a place called Waddell.
2: Apparently it's like an unincorporated area, so like it's not even technically a town, but I don't so I don't know. I don't even know how long it's been around. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna... And you're technically in a home, but it's actually a trailer. Yep, exactly. Did I close the
3: door of the conference room?
1: Yes, you okay. should. Yeah, because Steve is next to you, and he's a serious scientist.
2: No one's gonna come in.
0: If they do, just stare at them. Don't say anything. Yeah. Just stare at them.
2: Make strange animal noises. Drive mm-hmm. them off faster.
0: Or maybe or call to... I think that would freak them out more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or do the raccoon call that Tyler showed us.
0: What's the raccoon call?
1: It's. Do you remember? So we were sitting in. Uh, Ohio a few years ago for the AAAA conference and then it was Dr. White and all of us and Tyler Lanes and stuff and so suddenly we were sitting in the backyard and we someone saw a raccoon and then Tyler said oh I know the call of the raccoon and we were like what is it he's like raccoon (laughs) (laughs) the raccoon just like stared at us (laughs) and then nothing happened
0: (laughs) reunited (laughs) with his people okay (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. I mean he is the height of a raccoon so (laughs)
0: <laughs> Tyler if you're listening to this I'm sorry all right uh well let's let's get started because there's there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can talk about and I, I don't want to keep you guys too late so um I guess to to start thank you all for you know taking some time out of your day to do this because this is gonna be really awesome um and I I think it's 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 a really good episode too to do for you know people who are trying to you know, better navigate what being in student or, or trying to figure out like what being in student orgs is really like. Um, and, you know, I don't really think you understand that until you actually get to college. So um, it'll be really cool to hear, you know, a lot more about your guys's experience on PPT and then how you guys kind of work through the challenges of being students and then also working on this as well. So um, I guess why don't we just start off by Introducing who you are, and then we will just kind of segue into questions from there. So any any victim can start, um, any, if you just want to introduce yourselves, like say your name and what you guys did on the project, um, what you're doing now, uh, any other neat facts about yourself that you would like to share.
2: I'll start, that's fine. Um, so my name's Joe Mayer, I was a uh, lead systems engineer uh, on the project, I was f- mostly focusing on the uh, vacuum chamber uh, testing equipment. Uh, I w- attended ASU for computational mathematics. I graduated in 2018 and I currently work for Mayo Clinic where I run their uh, anatomical modeling and 3D printing lab.
1: And what's a fun fact about you? Uh,
2: fun fact, I, I don't know about any fun facts. I can give you facts. <laughs> Your
1: name rhymes with Ho. Uh,
2: yeah, there's there's a fun fact for you.
0: <laughs> Are you somebody's Ho, though? No, I'm <laughs> not. Okay. <laughs> All right, next. Okay, next Omar thing. can go next. All right.
3: um, so, my name's Omar Alavi, and um, I did my bachelor's in aerospace engineering and specializing in astronautics, and I'm currently doing my master's in mechanical engineering. Um on the project uh, I mostly worked on mechanical design and um led the project for a time after Addy. and now I'm sort of we call it like a mission assurance specialist, but it's really just working on um the attitude control simulation or at least going deeper into the calculations to um Evaluate use cases in more detail and the sample missions that we can apply to. And what's your fun fact? Well, I'm starting uh, Internship with in safety and mission assurance for NASA Glenn on the European service module To be used on Orion.
0: That is a pretty rad fact.
3: Yeah,
2: that's awesome. Congrats. Thank you
0: tiny round of applause
1: Okay, uh yeah, I'm Addie and I'm, uh, I graduated from ASU also in 2019 with you and in aerospace engineering. And then I started my PhD in planetary science, and I study basically different kinds of things on Mars and occasionally other planets, and how to sneak bananas onto your face sometimes. In terms of my role, I joined uh, the BPD project a few years ago. I led the team for two, three years and was like the, a combination of the systems engineer and the project lead or something. And a fun fact is I ride with my right and I kick with my left and I throw with my right and I bat with my left. Yeah, that's the one I always use.
0: That's a good one. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and just for context, Addy is also my roommate. So that's, and occasionally tries to put you know fruit on my head <laughs> because he finds himself funny so so that's that's where Someone that context feel. comes from yes yeah
2: as long as somebody finds him funny that's all it that counts yeah. no yeah.
0: it only no it matters if i find it funny <laughs>
2: oh you're the alpha and omega with that
0: <laughs> yeah no <laughs> um i guess before we get into you know the weeds of all of the technical questions on how PPT works and you know, lessons you guys have learned, um, how you guys went about testing everything. Um, given the equipment that, you know, we had at ASU, let's just kind of start off with a general uh, can you guys just give us like a, you know, general overview of what exactly was PPT and how was it designed, what went into that?
1: Yeah. It's a form of electric propulsion. And so it uses electricity to generate propulsion or force or thrust. And in this case, uh, it was developed by the Russians in the 60s. And uh, it started off with using Teflon, so carbon and fluorine, which they used to coat bands. And at room temperature, it just looks like a piece of white solid. And if you put electricity into it, you're essentially putting electrons, which have energy. And you're taking that energy and transferring it to the solid piece of Teflon and which is like a fuel and it ablates or turns into gas, except the gas is ionized, so it has charges in it. And so ionized gas is plasma, the fourth state of matter. And that's because it's ionized, it can be directed with uh, electric fields or magnetic fields. And so as it's being pushed out of the thruster, it's creating a force in the opposite direction, which creates thrust. And so, like I said, people have known about them for a long time, but we were trying to make a smaller version for CubeSats because they are existing uh, CubeSat propulsion technologies, but they are not as uh, reliably um, medium thrust, uh, thrust thrusty. And so I can't remember exactly, actually, maybe Omar or someone else can jump in about this, but... We I know we did a big survey in our this proposal we wrote uh, to show why our thing was be- our PPD was better and I think it was because the specific impulse was better than most uh, currently available cubesat propulsion and it, it was better in terms of weight and um, the oh yeah and then the key factor was a lot of propulsion technologies that are in the small form factor for cubesats give you thrust in one direction. Our design gave you thrust in eight directions. And so it gave you multi-axis control that could help perform roll, yaw, and all of that, as well as um, if you had a reaction wheel on your CubeSat, it could unload the torque from those. And depending on if you reconfigured the whole thing, you could then also get thrust in one direction. Um, It would take you places slowly, but it would work. That was our goal.
3: Yeah, I think that was a good good overview of it. Um, although I believe it would be used for um, momentum wheel dumping since they have the continuous motion and reaction wheel, I think you'd be starting from still, mm-hmm. yeah. Who's but, holding you hostage? Um, what? Who's holding you hostage? Oh, no, this is just my backyard. Yeah.
2: No, but yeah, I think the overview you did was was good. Um, the yeah, the I think the biggest thing that our project was working on that other, sort of like, commercial uh, applications didn't have was really the uh, multi-axis control. It wasn't just a, a thruster um, for like you know propulsion in a single direction.
3: Yeah, and having eight thrusters gave redundancy on how you can apply a moment, um, in about any of the axes. So um, you had that flexibility along with the fact that the only moving part was really just a spring that was, um, or that would be a spring that would be expanding um, over the life of each of the thruster elements or those thruster bodies. So that would amount to a few centimeters of travel over the course of the entire life of the product, um, so having that adds to overall lifetime like benefits. you have less things at risk of failure with by having those less moving components.
0: Uh, oh, that's really that's really cool. Um, oh, sorry, Addie, you wanted to Oh yeah,
3: one last thing, um, which is where I
1: alluded at both of them alluded to it, which is that it's not just a cluster, it's for attitude control as well. And and then this I was just going to look up on our own paper because I can't remember what our expected dimensions were supposed to be. Because I think it was less than 1u, right?
0: Yeah. I think, I think I remember it being less mm-hmm. than 1U.
1: Yeah.
3: OK. Yeah, I think,
2: yeah, I think at bad. the end, we were at like 0.75. We were shooting for 0.5, but we had to add a little bit towards the end. Or at least I say end when I left. Yeah. Everything else after that is a material. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we've brought up multi-axis control a few times. So I'm really curious. How did you guys actually implement the multi-axis control for that? Like, how did that mechanism actually work?
1: So yeah, we I guess we should uh, clarify that we weren't doing attitude control. We were just. Or, I mean, we were doing attitude control, but we weren't, and it wasn't an ADCS. We weren't actually determining attitude and then also applying certain momentum um, shifts through firing pairs of thrusters. Um, That work had begun, but our goal was to interface with something else that would actually do the attitude determination. And then, based on how much thrust each thruster could provide and the moment it could provide, uh, then that unit, which is separate from ours, would then determine which thrusters to fire and for how long.
0: Okay. So I guess just to um, give people a visual of what this looked like for, um, so regarding multi-axis control was, so there's eight different thrusters and did they all, um, you know, I guess if you were looking at it Mm -hmm. uh, from what I, Remember, there's two on each side, correct?
2: Yeah, so basically our design, it was, we had like a single PCB, and then on top and on the bottom, we had um, opposing or perpendicular uh, thrusters. Basically, it was just like a long rectangular box that would house the fuel and the uh, springs. Um, So then like the top would be uh, going one direction, and then underneath on the bottom of the uh, PCB would be going the other, basically forming like a hashtag. Um, on top, so that way we would get uh, you know two thrusters in each direction um, for all four that we would need to go.
0: Okay, and I'm sorry, I think I missed it. The spring, what, what exactly was the spring for?
2: So as, you're, as the pulse plasma thruster is firing, it's ablating the Teflon. And then basically as you're ablating it, you're losing material. And so the Teflon block gets shorter and shorter. Um, but to actually allow for that ablation to occur, you had to keep the uh, Teflon up against a pair of electrodes. So we had a spring device in the center that would keep pressure on the Teflon, pushing it further out towards the electrodes. So that way it always had contact and we could continue to ablate material. Um, and you didn't run into any problems of like, half the the Teflon was halfway in the tube and, you know, no electrical current could get to it.
0: So, I mean, you guys actually got to, you know, doing some degree of prototyping with this. So did you you guys run into any, um, I guess, did you run into any issues or, you know, challenges um, as a result of just that spring mechanism when you were trying to actually test everything out or did it work pretty okay?
1: I don't think we ever actually tested with the spring uh, mechanism, but we, since we weren't ablating for that many pulses. However, there were plenty of other challenges because the thing we haven't mentioned all this time is, it's a very simple system as we've said, but the main problem is that it, to ablate that Teflon, you need a lot of energy in a short amount of time. And so um, that requires high voltages, so like around 1000 volts or higher Kiloamps. amps. Um, I think to charge your phone it takes 10 to the negative six times so like a million times less current. So it's a million times more current and will and then a lot of voltage going into the stefan for a fraction of a second to cause it to ablate and that so doing that on a small scale is difficult and it's it's still possible to generate all the power the, the additional challenges then for it to not jump across the circuit board, and short things, or um, yeah, causing cause arcs, and yeah, so to prevent that, you have to a design the board well enough, insulate it, and then also test in a low vacuum environment so that there's an ambient air allowing for arcing to happen. Those are the and when
0: you say oh sorry, when you say insulate it, do you mean um, you know, like how for space applications, y- you can apply conformal coating for things like outgassing. Was it something like that, or was it something more like um, kind of like an EMI shield, like a you know an anodized aluminum shield that usually goes over hardware to protect it?
1: There, do you want
2: to go? Oh yeah, I, as far as I know, our yeah, the, it would be more of just like a, a coating. Something just to keep like contacts uh, from being out in the open um, and shorting across other metal objects or anything like that um, on on the board. And then also okay. making
1: sure that uh, high voltage traces um, were thick enough and also far enough from each other so that they wouldn't arc to each other. And then most of the housing um, was a sort of um, I don't remember what it. Was. I think it wasn't it a plastic.
2: It, it was actually like the, there were the the actual uh, the um. Ceramic, yeah. Uh, Teflon would be. It was just like a ceramic material. I don't re- I recall the name of it. Makor. Um, Makor, that was it. Yeah. So it's like a ceramic uh, type of material. Yeah, which is
1: insulating thermally and electrically.
0: Um. So I guess kind of going off of this, since we're we're talking about. E- you know, challenges that you guys ran into when trying to fit this into a, a CubeSat platform. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, challenges with, uh, you know, already with hardware, with trying to fit it all into this very small volume. So, um, it you know, power is one that we've talked about, um, but what other kinds of challenges did you guys run into related to, uh, you know, thermal control, EMI. I'm not sure if you guys explored things like EMI, um, or yeah. even you know just volume-wise, trying to f- trying to fit it all and and not make it you know the size of a one U, right? So so you know there's there's some room for play. So you know cubesats can use this and then also have plenty of room for their other hardware. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Again, so the main challenge was the circuit, and within the circuit, the main challenge was the switch, because you had to have something. The way the circuit works is you charge a bunch of, bunch of capacitors to a kilovolt, and then you have to quickly discharge them in a microsecond to discharge all the current and energy stored in those capacitors into the Teflon. And for that, you need a switch to be able to handle kiloamps of current and 1,000 volts. And that's the hardest part. And um, those sorts of uh, switches are used. They're called like thyristors and, or silicon-controlled rectifiers. And they're used for, um, like, on the power grid. Whoa. <laughs> Omar's horn of approval. They're used for Omar <laughs> is a train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, Yeah. But yeah, they're used on power exactly. grids, and so they're huge. And so we, uh, our first tests, for example, were these gigantic switches that were the size of, like, a hockey puck. And you'd bolt on everything to them. And then trying to get that hockey puck size switch down to a circuit level board component was really challenging. And yeah, I think almost every test something would go wrong in terms of mainly arcing or um, you'd see something burn up into flames or um, it nothing would happen. And then that was the worst because if nothing happened, you didn't know if everything was at high voltage and current, uh, meaning, you could get a shock, and you could even like die. So um, we had to figure out a discharge mechanism that was safe. And initially, our discharge mechanism was was not safe. And <laughs> we had Doctor White as our uh, conductor, who would essentially use yeah, let's not go into that. And <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, but I, I think Omar and I, maybe Joe have been uh, shocked in this process. And
3: we don't need to say that we've been shocked on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean shocked took- was a safe
2: place to work on projects. I didn't. Mean- we took all safety precautions necessary. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't mean shocked by electricity. I meant shocked by my lack of a uh, sense of humor.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm not shocked. Yeah.
0: all right is this the part where we tell you to keep your day job (laughs) okay
3: (laughs) yeah i think our approach was identifying like what Addy had described um identifying like a lot of the core systematic element or system elements and then what components are involved to perform those core functions um, such as like charging a capacitor bank, storing that energy, being able to discharge at some rate that would be appropriate for the thruster. Um, and then being able to work on a prototype model and system that was able to be tested in our own um chamber at the scale that we would need to be able to inform us of some of our next steps. So um, a big focus was on like the wider PCBs to kind of get the concept of the electrical layout done, um, to explore the possibilities of how to mechanically attach the body of a thruster um, for the prototyping environment versus or like a lab environment and how might that be different for kinds of flight intention per se
1: oh wait joe um you should talk about yeah. challenges that we face with vacuum chambers and
2: yeah i was, I was gonna do that once omar was finished yeah. um yeah so i focused on the uh, the vacuum chamber uh testing rig uh was my main focus during the project um and yeah we just ran into some a pretty big issues all the time. Um, at first it was kind of just getting the right equipment that we could safely use. So when we first started out, um, we had a, uh, just a regular basic rotary vane pump, uh, which would get you down to a certain level, which would allow you to then use a, a different type of pump to get to high vacuum levels. The first one we had was called a diffusion pump, which basically heats up oil and then uses that oil vapor to pull the air molecules out of the chamber. Uh, issue that we ran into with that was that it used a 240 volt uh, plug they had one of those plugs in the lab but it was kind of on the other side of where we were uh, our little area was that we were working and it was the kind of thing that you'd have to leave plugged in for a long period of time for it to warm up and actually do its job Um, so it wasn't super safe to kind of just leave that out where anybody could get to it because it would get pretty hot Um, from there we were were able to get a, a, a uh, turbo molecular pump, which is similar to like a jet engine where it just takes the, it has the rotors and stators and molecules go in there, hit it, and then they work their way down and eventually get evacuated out of the system. Um, so that one was a lot safer and a lot easier to use. So we were able to start using that. I was able to build a whole uh, cart with all the rig, uh, the, the chamber itself and all that. Um, unfortunately though, it just, I Either there was a massive leak somewhere that we couldn't identify, or the um, chamber itself that we were using, which was a large acrylic tube, um, was either outgassing or just letting a lot of um, air through. So we never really got down to a, a low enough level um, where we could do like a really efficient test. Um, eventually, Addy actually found a, a professor who was retiring um, or something like that, and then he was. Um, he had, he had some old like actual stainless steel um, vacuum chambers that he wasn't using anymore and was like, oh, yeah, we can go ahead and you can use those. Um, so we got those. They brought them to our lab. And then um, somewhere along the line, the uh, environmental health and safety people.
1: We have to make that story more dramatic. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was I just told the story today to someone and mm. yeah. OK, so. I was walking icb 4 which is this big building at ASU where all this space stuff is, and I saw these gigantic, like the chamber that Joe was forced to work with was the size of a mini fridge or smaller, and it was made of acrylic, which is good, but not great, and real vacuum chambers are made out of metal or aluminum, and so anyway, I was walking i c 4 I saw these big chambers lying in the basement, and I asked, uh i think it was chris Grappy or someone i don't know um mark byron i think who was the building manager and he said yeah they've been here for 10 15 years no one's really using them and so i said we're looking for one do you think we could have them and he said i'll check with the professor and then somehow they said sure and so we literally put them on ramps wheeled them down to the warehouse from isdb4 which is like a quarter of a mile and then um, every, they were in there and gleaming and worth a lot of money, like at least $50,000, $60,000. We could never afford it otherwise. And they gave them to us. And so we were really excited to get into them and um, start setting them up. And then I think a week later, I got a frantic phone call from the warehouse saying, you've got to come here quick. Uh, they're taking away the, the chambers so i i said okay i'll be there and then i got there and there's like yellow police tape all around these chambers and they're covered with like cling film and plastic wrap so was like i don't what is happening and then they said apparently there's some something wrong with them and we can't use them we can't touch them and they're they could be dangerous and yeah so we were obviously kind of shocked and surprised by that and Mm -hmm. Since we'd got it, I think it's fine to say this, but all of us, like Joe and I, had already taken apart most of it. And so actually gone inside and touched everything and um, taken it apart and put put parts uh, in our warehouse and just so that we could have an inventory of what's needed to be fixed and what's needed to be added. And yeah, then uh, I think a day later they say uh, they start asking us all these questions, like, where did you get these and how did you get them? And so we told them that they just came from down the road, ASU. And so they did some investigation, and this is health and safety. And they said, oh, um, these chambers were at ASU Research Park, where they were owned by a professor who, at one point, among other things, did research with beryllium, which is this uh, carcinogenic, uh, dangerous, toxic chemical. And um, they were suddenly super scared that there was beryllium in those chambers. And that's why they seized them immediately and they said they would do all these tests. And unfortunately, the guy whose chambers they were had died uh, from an unrelated incident. And uh, <laughs> so they couldn't contact him, but they asked a colleague, a colleague and then that's what he said, that apparently, yeah, like can't remember, but I think he did something with beryllium. And so they were like, oh shit. and so. They see them and they said, we'll do some tests and get them back to you in a few weeks. And then we, I swear, I think we met them at least five or six times over the next few months. And they kept saying, oh, like we're waiting for some specialists and this is very dangerous. We can't do it ourselves. And we might have to outsource it. And even for testing, they were saying we might have to charge you and we didn't have any money. And so... They kept delaying it and delaying it. And then I think a year passed and finally they tested it. They sent some samples to somewhere uh, and it came back with nothing, like peanut butter or something that Joe had when we were <laughs> taking it apart. And so, yeah, they were totally safe and they gave them back to us. But that set us back a year because we, like we said, we couldn't test in atmosphere. You had to test in a good vacuum. The one Joe built was great, but it wasn't low enough these things would have gotten us low enough, but they were taken away for a year. So that set us back for a year. And the problem with PPT and PPT testing is you're ablating this Teflon and it's not incredibly efficient. So there's actual pieces of Teflon being shot out into your vacuum chamber, which can outgas later on and get on stuff. So other people don't want us to use their chamber because you're essentially filling it up with a bunch of crap. And so that was the other problem, and okay, so sorry, Joe, but I had to make sure. No, it's fine.
2: <laughs> but yeah, that was that was probably our biggest setback, um, at least from the vacuum chamber standpoint. Um, yeah, apparently that professor—they said he may have done beryllium deposition, um, which basically is just they use a plasma to superheat a metal, and then they'll basically gives you a thin layer of whatever that metal is onto a type of object that you put in the chamber. Um, and so that's what they were freaking out about. Um, and I, at one point that one of the health and safety people looked in there and they saw like some powder in the base. Um, and they were freaking out about that. I long story short, I was able to actually find a, um, uh, I believe he was a professor at ASU who, uh, specialized in thin film depositions and would actually do them for the, uh, electrical engineering department. And, um, kind of partnered with him and he was basically like yeah even if they did do beryllium deposition as long as you don't plan on eating the vacuum chamber you're perfectly f- <laughs> safe so we're like oh we don't plan on eating it so we should be good but that wasn't a good enough answer for them uh the powder that they actually saw and he explained was that the way that the, that chamber used uh pulled to high vacuum was it actually oxidized titanium so there'd be a titanium powder that the air air would hit oxidize and then create titanium oxide. Um, and so that was basically what the powder was again, completely harmless unless you're going to eat it or breathe it in. Um, did? so yeah, basic. Oh, what was it? All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so eventually we were able to finally, uh, uh, get that. I know that there was at one point when we were looking at testing and they're like, Oh, we may have to charge you some money. Um, I actually reached out to the, the, I think he was a chairman in charge of some department that was gonna do the testing. And he was like, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll cover any costs that you need to do. Ended up not actually having to go that route. Um, they were able to find it. But yeah, it was basically every time we talked to them, they're like, oh, we're still doing research on how to test for it. Oh, we don't know how to test for it. Maybe we can do this or that. And so, yeah, it just kind of dragged out for a super long time.
1: And yeah, I was just gonna say, we we did put marshmallows in the other chamber. But never in the chamber. And and the other cool thing about this chamber was um, at the bottom, in addition to the titanium deposition thing, there was also um, essentially a high-powered magnetic coil, and so you would plug in this chamber into the wall, those coils would turn on, and the purpose was that as the stuff is being sucked out of the chamber, any ions that are in the chamber can be attracted or pulled by this magnetic field being generated by this coil. And you can get rid of ionic um, material in the chamber as well. So yeah, this chamber was really good and um, wouldn't have been perfect if it had worked.
3: Yeah, over that past year before COVID kind of shut things down, um, we were able to get it to 10 to the minus one, I believe. Um, 10 to the minus two um, or so as we progressively looked for leaks going from bigger to smaller. Um, And we replaced like all the gaskets, but still. um, And we had a concept for a configuration to then implement for another round of prototyping um but that most of the manufacturing for like fabrication of the mechanical side of those configurations was due to start towards the end of march 2020 um and a lot of like the electrical troubleshooting components that we needed for some of the controllers um that we're just sitting beside the chamber um, for most of the time up until then, since we weren't able to use the big chamber, um, at least like the sensors that were intended to be mounted to that chamber. Um, we needed to replace some components. Those arrived around mid-March, um, right when things kind of cut out. So um, yeah, that's, That's all I have to add. I mean, we did a lot of other stuff, but that's pretty much what it amounted to was some progress um, in getting everything torqued and getting all the fasteners replaced, all the gaskets replaced and um, progressively finding all the leaks. um, But, It would probably be a few more tests, um, like leak tests that would have have needed to be done, um, after some of the sensors were refurbished manually.
0: That's all really cool. Like, I remember the, um, I remember the chambers being gone for a really long time, but I didn't realize that you guys had to, you know, I didn't, I don't recall you guys having to go through all of that with them, so, um,
1: yeah, when we started the project, Omar didn't have a beard, and by the end, you can see his face.
0: <laughs> Did anyone have gray hairs?
2: Maybe. Yes, and and it's and this created my lifelong hatred of environmental he- health and safety people. So
0: yeah, that's so random too. So they just like because I don't think they contacted like any of the off. Op- I don't remember them contacting any of the officers' board from SDCL to say like, hey, we're just gonna come in and you know and. These chambers are dangerous and we need to inspect them i i at least as far as i know like i think they just kind of came in at least based on i may have that wrong but
2: um yeah from what i can remember there was one lady who would like walk through the warehouse just randomly and just like inspect everything um and yeah and then just like out of the blue i get a call from the vacuum chambers we just got so
0: oh okay also
2: they
3: didn't disassemble or reassemble it properly at all
1: yeah we had to do a bunch of stuff after um, they gave it back
3: so most are like replaced based on their description of how they like handled um especially that gasket um and they're gonna charge us to be able to hoist the top half even like they're gonna charge us by the hour as an org if we wanted to actually replace it. But um, that and some of the internals, if we wanted to do any modifications there, ASU would have us pay for the hoist. So, um, I mean, it's manageable with some of the funding that we have, but we aren't like a huge project, so.
0: Right, I guess to give people more of a, uh, maybe a a more comprehensive, like perspective of the project. Um, Maybe that's not the word I want. But um, I guess what were the main requirements that drove how you designed everything? Like, were you trying to, um, you know, was there some sort of a max thrust that you were aiming for? or, or you know, like things, things like volume, and then how did that kind of change the way that everything else was designed?
1: Yeah, we had, I guess, five sort of overall goals that weren't necessarily all very specific, but things like providing multi-axis control and complying with CubeSat standards. But then there were also specific goals like um, providing a certain amount of minimum impulse. Um, as well as specific impulse. And then, like Joe had mentioned earlier, we had an overall goal for volume, for keeping it under half you, mm-hmm. um, with the threshold for maybe 0. 0.75 or 0. 0.8. And we didn't really have a mass one. But those are the main overarching goals, yeah.
0: And I guess- for- Yeah, I think
2: from a dis- Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, from a design standpoint, um, I think the biggest thing was uh, just the volume. Um, so we kind of had to make sure everything was as tight and small as possible when we were designing like the actual thruster housings and the board layout and that kind of stuff.
0: Okay. And I guess just to circle back to what you were saying, Addie, for, for people who aren't familiar with these terms, what is the difference between specific impulse and minimum impulse? Pop quiz. Oh,
1: like I, <laughs> I, I can get, the, I can I get this. I didn't work on there. the project. <laughs> I'm just a spokesperson.
0: This work here.
1: Yeah, I read the script and make some boxes with stuff written on them.
0: OK, OK, we'll, co- <laughs> we'll cut this um, part out. Specific,
1: imp- I think, I don't know, do you remember?
3: Uh, anything specific Um, is related to the amount of like mass consumed mm-hmm. um, to provide the impulse, um, where I believe minimum impulse would be what is the smallest impulse? Okay, well, while he's limbo, <laughs> um pulse In terms of the amount, what's the smallest amount of force? Am I cut out again? Yeah. Did I cut yeah. out? Yeah.
1: How do you do any work or anything uh, at home if you're in it? So
3: well, today's been a struggle. Um Yeah, it's been all, I've been like cut out of a bunch of meetings and I had to log in and stuff and do you have Cox Internet? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't. I can't swear on a recording, so I'm not going to talk about Cox. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, so um, I looked it up, and specific impulse is essentially how efficiently an engine or rocket um, behaves, and then the minimum impulse bit, which is our other goal, was trying to. Um, it's essentially a measure of precision. And if you're trying to do attitude control, you're making these fine movements. And so you want a small, usually if it's something like a telescope, then those telescopes need to make very fine adjustments to the, the satellite position to get a different area of the earth or a star somewhere else. And so that was one of our other goals was to be able to have a very small and minimum impulse bit, So you can actually do these fine, uh, changes because a lot, if you just have things like, um, our competitors, which were, um, gas thrusters and stuff, those are essentially just shooting a bunch of gas out and they weren't always necessarily be able to, um, provide the same minimum impulse bit. So that was another goal
0: gotcha yeah so then how did you guys achieve how did you achieve your objectives for that did it have to do with actual thruster design or
1: on a high level it has to do with the power and so there you can model it and so we used existing models to calculate okay if we apply this much voltage and this much current and this much time to this much fuel you get this much impulse bit or impulse specific impulse and then, of course, you have to test it out to make sure um, because every design is going to vary. And yeah, we had our own design that was based on existing work, but um, there could be variations because of that. We never got to the level of actually getting those values, however. Oh, and some of the measurements are actually pretty easy. It's like you imagine you fire once and you, or maybe 10 times, 100 times. Hundred times probably, and then you measure the weight of the deflon before and the weight of the deflon after, and the amount you've lost allows you to gen- um, And as long as you're measuring force as well, mm-hmm. if you measure the force and then you have the mass you've lost, you can get the specific impulse.
0: Gotcha. That's really that's really cool. Actually, you mm-hmm. know, um, I I think for a lot of people who. I don't know. Like, if you're unfamiliar with the topic, like, I can see how that would seem kind of like, oh, how are we going to test this and measure it? And it that's it's really cool that you know what seems like some very you know complex and kind of crazy topic is actually in some in some areas yeah. is not so bad. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the the thrusts are pretty small. They're on the order of micronewton. So. Like the weight of a sheet of paper on your hand. But with all of a lot of electric propulsion, it adds up over time. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. Joe's gonna say something.
2: Oh, no, I just muted because I was choking on water. I didn't think you guys wanted to hear that.
1: <laughs> of course, I okay. wanted to hear it. It's my erotic pleasure.
2: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind next time.
0: Oh dear. <laughs> Tri- I have to insert a trigger warning before <laughs> the beginning of this podcast caution if you are (laughs) never mind um
2: you're gonna learn way more about addie than you ever wanted to
0: (laughs) and because i'd like to keep this a family-friendly show we are gonna move on so so kind of looking at more of the design so you guys did this over you know several or you know quite a few years so and i'm 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 sure the design must have evolved quite a bit over that time as well so Um, I guess you guys have any like stories or, you know, lesson relevant lessons learned in terms of um, where, you know, where PBT started out, like, did it always have eight thrusters or did that change? Um, Did your requirements for like, uh, you know, your specific impulse change over time, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So I guess it started out with one thruster and just getting a BBD to fire at all. And so that goes back to us using this giant hockey puck switch. And in this case, the thruster was not two parallel plates. So in our final design, uh, or most latest design, I suppose, the latest design, it was two parallel electrodes and the Teflon in between. Before that, we had what's known as a coaxial thruster design. And so it's imagine a tube with an inner tube and uh, there's room between the two tubes because the first tube is hollow. So maybe a rod inside a tube. There's an inner rod and around it, there's a bunch of Teflon and you put both of these things (laughs) in a tube. Then there's no oil or anything, you just put it in. And um, instead of the voltage being supplied by parallel plates, it's now going from the outer tube into the rod inside. And it's just, again, not an anode and a cathode. And our goal, and on at the outside, there's a nozzle. And it turns out we did a bunch of certain research and talked to people. The nozzle doesn't make a gigantic difference um, because most of the thrust is not coming from gas velocity. Um, but anyway, there was a nozzle. And so that was the first iteration and that worked in our small chamber. And once we were sort of confident that sort of design was going to work, we decided to then make it a smaller CubeSat version. And that's unfortunately where we were stuck for a while. And we made it, we actually did make a CubeSat version that would work intermittently, but our environment was unstable in terms of ionizing and not having enough not going low enough again with vacuum. And so I think we tested once, sometime, like maybe yeah, once or twice in the CubeSat configuration uh, as a prototype and in under vacuum successfully. And that worked, but we never actually got around to building eight or even a, a setup that reliably fired. And that's not to say if we did take our current setup We had, yeah, so we never got around to like putting all eight of them. And what I was gonna say is, I think if we actually put our setup into a real vacuum chamber that could go down low enough, I have a feeling it would have worked and we could have pushed on and built the whole thing. But unfortunately, because of the setbacks we've had with the chamber, we're still sort of stuck in that same place and yeah.
0: Gotcha. And I guess just for a reference, when you say low enough, do you mean ten to the minus fifth? Low enough, like yeah, typical, that's the other thing. Like, um, thermal vacuum space, or you know, what thermal vacuum chambers typically go down to for testing for space conditions,
1: which isn't door, right? No one's yes. saying any units.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> because the
2: everybody knows him already eddie come on
0: yeah
1: <laughs> Mar was like yeah we were at 10 to the negative one and i was like pascal or millibar or four. so wait joe I, you should answer that
2: uh yeah i think we were yeah it was 10 to the negative six i believe is what we were aiming for yeah. um, and i want to say we got to 10 to the negative third tour yeah um, okay with our acrylic chamber our little small one and the turbo pump. Mm-hmm. So.
1: But still three orders of magnitude off. So.
2: Yeah, obviously, it wasn't enough to do a proper testing. But yeah. So yeah.
0: Well, you got past the corona region, so you could actually turn stuff on and.
1: Yeah, I mean, we. I think sometimes when we did test, we were still in the corona region, and that mm-hmm. did cause arcing and problems, and um, yeah, it, during this process, at some point, we were collaborating with JPL, and one of the tests in between, um, something actually, we turned it on, and uh, our advisor had come up with a, like a shortcut idea of trying to make a circuit using, a component that was not, meant to be used for this high voltage application, and we turned it on, and it just popped off the board, and hit the hit the chamber. Oh my and, gosh! And then because that had come off um, the the circuit shorted and it essentially started smoking inside the chamber <laughs> and I, did it actually catch
2: fire
0: okay so when you said fire in the beginning you actually like like that <laughs> that well, was I'm real remember.
1: was there a fire or no i know
2: it- <laughs> i think a, i think briefly it it did i think the circuit board caught on fire for a brief moment oh
1: my god yeah 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 uh, like we didn't have to use a fire extinguisher and like right like call l a okay. and stuff
0: yeah okay, it just sounds cooler if you say there was a fire, yeah,
1: and Ryan started it, so yeah, just so we're clear
0: all right. I hope people get office references <laughs> um, <laughs> um
1: wait, okay, Joe and Omar think what other stories were there of things going wrong or things happening during testing?
2: trying to think I know that there was one time when we had the um school newspaper that came and um we were going to do our test and we were running around like chickens with our heads cut off trying to get everything together um and then we like did our test but i think it ended up just shorting so it didn't actually fire but it was just this really loud pop and a bright white flash of light (laughs) and everyone's like oh yeah we fired and then that was it but at the (laughs) end afterwards we're like yeah we're pretty sure that just shorted everything out and nothing actually did what we wanted it to do
0: but this was at least when the newspaper was there, right? Yeah. So yeah. Okay, so they so, got something. Yeah, That's all they killed. The
2: as far as they were concerned, we were six, we successfully fired a pulse blast <laughs> thruster. But
1: yeah, it just it was just a lot of things not working, like I said before, or um, you thought something would work and then it wouldn't, and it would blow up, or so many boards had to be resoldered and melted and. Um, because we didn't have enough money, sometimes if the board or in other pieces on the board would melt, we'd always have to try and check if one of the main components, which is this transformer, to get to high voltage was still alive. And so you'd have to spend about 30 minutes, it was usually me, um, with a like a hairdryer essentially, to, bl- to melt the solder off this uh, transformer, and then take it out, and then test it, and then uh, transplanted into the next board because everything else we could throw away and we had spares but for those things we didn't and mm-hmm. emco if you're listening you should sponsor us <laughs> yeah.
0: so i guess to to piggyback off of that um over the past couple of minutes we've touched on a, a couple of things that i i want to address i guess before we get into any other topics just just because it's it's a, it's a pretty significant Okay. So these two things that I'm thinking of are pretty significant topics for student projects in general. Um, one of those is funding. Um, and then the other is collaborating with the industry. Cause you mentioned, you know, working with JPL. So, um, I guess to get the quick one out of the hope, oh, maybe quick one out of the way. Um, so funding is usually a, a big issue for a lot of university student projects. Um, just, because he's, you know, like how how much was the PPT estimated to be like as a as a full system?
1: Like what we we quoted eight million. That was our, but that was including our net worth as well.
0: Right, <laughs> right. I mean, okay. So like we didn't get funded eight eight million, but you know, just to put it in perspective, um, you know, the like the parts that you guys had to to buy are they're not cheap and on top of trying to prototype this thing you also have to maintain a vacuum chamber Um, so i guess can you talk a little bit about where your funding came from um and you know the different avenues that you explored and what were the different avenues that you explored how did you initiate contact with people if you contacted industry and um how did it work out from there was it you know did it work did it not work um things of that nature.
1: Okay, Joe, do you wanna go and I can jump in?
2: Yeah, um, so I think that uh, I wanna say when we first started um, Raytheon uh, had given us a, a little bit of money um, for like the initial startup um, and that, that was kind of before I had joined so I'm not familiar on the details of how we got that money. Um, I know through the organization itself, the Sun Devil Satellite Laboratory, we had received, uh, they got a, 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 an amount of money called Dean's Funding every uh, semester. And so we got a cut of that because we were like a subset of the, uh, um, the, the group, that, uh, that club itself. Um, as for like industry, I know that um, I believe they either reached out to us or I believe Addy reached out. There was a, a company that was just starting up um, that I think they were looking at uh, electric propulsion systems as well. And they were interested um, in either funding partially of the system. Uh, or just kind of helping out with any way we need um but unfortunately they ended up like flaking on us um we kind of stayed in contact here and there but we never actually ended up getting any money from them or anything um really any assistance from them at that point um but yeah a lot of it especially like the vacuum chamber stuff um i would say probably like 80 to 90% of it was kind of just scrounging around Um, I know that one uh, professor that I had mentioned earlier that did the film film deposition, um, he had a lot of extra supplies and storage and stuff. So we kind of like when we got the big fancy um, vacuum chambers, there were some pieces of equipment on there we didn't really need. So we were kind of like, hey, you can have this and maybe we can grab some of this other stuff that you've got 10 of type of thing. Um, So kind of bartering and that. um, So that way we could get just some of the more basic stuff that we needed to get up and running.
0: And then uh, just to provide a little bit of context there too. So you mentioned Dean's funding, how, I guess, yearly, what what kind of funding did you have to spend on, you know, things like prototyping and maintenance?
2: I, Addie can correct me again on this one. I want to say we got $500 a semester um, for our project uh, on that one. So it was it kind of... Didn't go super far. I mean, for again, I because I did the vacuum stuff, so that's where I'm more familiar. Um, there was a ceiling, uh, like, uh, uh, kind of like a, an epoxy that you'd put on to seal up the vacuum system. And that was like, a, I think a five ounce tube and it cost like $120 or something. So like stuff like that right there, you've already used like a fifth of your funding mm-hmm. um, just on something small that you kind of, is kind of critical that you, you're gonna need. I just saw a giant cockroach. And so I was like
0: yeah. <laughs> Oh God. Are
2: <laughs> uh, you, you looking in the mirror again, Eddie? Yeah. And
1: and and it's uh it's you that I see.
3: <laughs> That's the
1: weird thing. But yeah, um Bill covered a lot of it, but um some other things I wanted to mention were for Dean's funding, for example. Um, luckily for some of it, I was on the officer's board, so I was there when we were um, giving up the funds. It was always, uh, you had to like negotiate essentially and fight for your project. And so the thing we had against us a little bit was because we had funding from Atheon, uh, other projects would say, oh, you already have funding. We're gonna take more of Dean's funding. But um, so, yeah, so I think it was around 500 to a thousand is what we would try and get the total. SDSL would get, it was around $2,000. So we try and get some chunk of that. And then the Raytheon funding went away a year later because they switched um, their industry contact. And so, yeah, we weren't getting funding from them anymore. And then I reached out to not just this new company, but essentially every company could find. I'd often go to the career fair and I wasn't necessarily looking for an internship, um, but I would take along our, like a a bunch of flyers and then our report and paper and stuff. And then try and talk to companies after they'd asked me some stuff about me, I'd say, oh, by the way, we're working on this project and would you be interested in collaborating with us? And through it, we can hopefully benefit mutually and you can fund us, we can promote you and you can, people on our team can intern with you and learn from you to, and then as well as get mentoring experiences um and so that even for example at one point we presented at aaa in ohio and um after the talk i was i think just everyone else was walking uh, away and i noticed someone wearing a lockheed like jacket or something and so i went up to her and i said um i don't know like did you enjoy the talk or something and she said yeah and then I said, and then I brought up the funding thing again. And so she gave me her card and then it never went anywhere. But yeah, I just, anywhere I could, um, I'd try and plug it. And that's why we're here really, we need money, help us. and <laughs> But yeah, it was hard and uh, ASU has resources apart from like the engineering funding as well. And so I contacted, um, they have like an industry relations person And so they tried to help us draft a sponsorship proposal and we sent it off to a few companies. Uh, We tried to talk to people. Another resource uh, can be alumni because a lot of alumni in engineering work in engineering and then they work in these companies that could sponsor you. So I tried to ask a few of them and um, that also didn't end up going anywhere. But yeah, we, we tried a bunch to get funding and we did meet a bunch of people and I think learned some things in terms of Initially, um, we would prepare a big report and fill it with all kinds of information. But then we slowly learned that no one wants to read all that stuff. Um, it's more helpful to condense it down to like one page, have a report as well, but it's the one page that they want to read and that they're going to read where you talk about what are you doing? Why do you need their money? How is it going to help them? And how is it going to help you? and get it onto one page and, and then try and circulate that.
0: No, that's, that's really, that's really good to know. Cause I get, um, yeah, that's one of the most common questions that I, I usually get asked when people ask me about, you know, starting CubeSat projects, for example, is, you know, what, what kinds of ways can you fund stuff like this? You know, we're not, we're not a big company. Um, you know, and, and it's it's difficult to get university funding in, in some cases. Um, I mean, even even at a school like ASU, there's a lot of people who are vying for resources. So you, it's, it's still hard to get that. So it's, um, I think it's very interesting to hear more about your experience. And because I've never actually, I mean, with other people I've talked to, I've, I haven't really heard too much about what, or, well, I mean, like, aside from, you know, seeing you guys try to get funding through S, um, through being a part of SDSL, I didn't know how successful any other projects were in trying to get funding from industry or trying to get funding from all of these other avenues. And if, you know, if that was something that to some degree actually ended up working, or if it's just, you know, (laughs) uh, Always better to just try to bug the university, mm-hmm. um, that kind of a thing. So it's. And, oh, yeah.
1: And we did, uh, I guess the other avenue is making a proposal, uh, solicited typically, but sometimes unsolicited. And so we did as well, uh, we also submitted a NASA proposal for a solicited um, program. And the cockroach disappeared again. And um, Yeah, and that wasn't successful again, but going through that exercise of, um, it forces you to prepare a budget and answer all those questions you were asking us in terms of materials and uh, testing costs and um, yeah. And then also if if you have collaborators trying to set that up and which we'll get into. and, um, And then also having a really clear goal of why is this important and why should you be funded and having as much preliminary work to show for it beforehand. So you can try and convince your funder that you're worth being funded. Mm-hmm. Going through that exercise, even if you don't get funded, it's very helpful. And typically you'll get feedback from NASA if you don't get it. And we actually didn't get any feedback and we emailed them later and they just said that it was just low, low selection rate. Like I think it was 8% selection for that program oh, okay. and we didn't get
2: it. Is that good? good luck, Let's try again. Yeah. Okay. yeah and there, there's actually two other ones that I just thought of too for funding uh, wise. Um, one of them was uh, it, probably the easier of the two avenues was through the school um, and it was different uh, programs. So for example, the uh, FURY or Fulton Undergraduate Research Initiative um, where basically every semester you could apply and then you had to work on a specific project um, and then do like a, a poster presentation, I believe it was. Um, at the end of the semester on what the project you'd worked on. So you got some funding that way. Um, the second big one that I had started to look into um, towards the end, right before I graduated, and unfortunately, I ran out of time, so I didn't get to go super far, um, but it was actually just grants in general. Um, so I'd actually found one through the United States Air Force that may have kind of sort of fit in with what we were doing. Um, unfortunately, the process through just getting ASU to, like, approve it and, like, uh, submit it on our behalf type of thing. Um, was very convoluted. Um, oh. So, but that was, that's definitely another avenue um, you can dig into is looking for just grants that are out there either through government or um, other types of agencies. Um, and then actually on, on top of the grant thing, um, we did actually submit a grant to uh, the NASA JPL Je- uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, and we did get accepted for that grant. It wasn't for any actual direct funding for the program, but it paid to have a a few of the students actually uh, fly out to JPL's campus and we got to take a tour and then present the work that we had been doing and then have actual engineers and scientists kind of critique us and let us know, uh, you know, hey, maybe you should go in this direction or take a look at this, uh, that kind of thing.
0: That's really awesome that you guys got to, uh, you know, pursue that kind of an opportunity. I don't know how rare that is, um, or I, I would assume that that's rare. So I, I think that's awesome. Um, that's also a great segue into the next question, uh, which is about, you know, a little bit more about partner, partnering with the industry. So you, I know you guys did have a collaboration with JPL, um, you know, kind of more of, uh, you know, them, them Mentoring you, I'm not sh- sure if that's if that's the right way to put it. But you guys did get to actually work with them and and get feedback from them uh, on how the design was was progressing. Um, so I I thought it would be really cool if, if you guys wanted to, to talk a little bit about that and what that nope. kind of collaboration looks like. Not a single but...
1: word, I'm not
0: because <laughs> um, well, I mean, this is another question that I typically get asked by people who are starting CubeSat projects is you know, is it beneficial to include people from the industry? Um, and if so, what does that kind of collaboration look like? Um, so it's it would be cool to hear your guys' perspective and, and what that looked like for you.
1: Yeah, um, I can, I guess, start with answering this. Um, so yeah, we were trying to get funding from a variety of sources, most of it unsuccessful. One of the places was like I said, I was just trying to market and ask people about collaborating and funding anywhere and I was interning at JPL and I started asking around and I found one person who had worked on CubeSat testing um, and they had this really cool testbed where it's called the small side dynamics testbed and they essentially test different CubeSat technologies to benchmark them. and um, kind of flight qualify them but without actually flying them. And I guess the next level down of TRL, technological readiness level, and they would do that. And so um, I met one engineer and she said that I used to work with this test bed and that sounds like a good idea. We could set up this thing called a collaborative academic partnership, which is what Joe was referring to before. And um, why don't you talk to the current person working there. And so we met and then um, yeah, they were interested. And so we wrote this mini proposal to get funding, to get mentoring for, I think a year, where we would have uh, bi-weekly telecons to showcase what we'd been working on, ask questions, get feedback, and then have these mini like fake design reviews um, at the end that would be like a few hours long. And for the first one, a team of JPLers came here and got a tour of our facility and then some more tours at ISTP4. Uh, and then when, and then we got to go there. And there are some fun stories about going there, which we can get into. And um, yeah, I think that was super benefi- beneficial. I think with industry, in general, you can be, it depends on who it is and how much time they have, of course, because once you're working, of course you have your job and that's what you're getting paid for. And so doing anything on top of that is on top of that. And so, um, yeah, it was very nice of them to take that time out and help us out because it was really beneficial. And even with things like, We had problems with circuit design, and like one of them had written a book on circuit design that was, oh wow, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And everything was explained really nicely and talked about some of the issues we were going through and how to avoid them. And yeah, so just, and they even, um, in terms of printing boards, they knew people from Colorado who had helped them when they were building a CubeSat, and they hooked us up to their, the same company. MP, and B, they we called them and they offered to like pay for all our boards for free and because they have this university program and yeah so there were things like that in terms of logistically helping us but then there was of course the mentoring and um, really just showing us how to find solutions because they weren't cubesat or ppt experts but it was more like we were talking to a systems engineer who could then help us Identify the best ways to solve problems and, yeah, learn from them. So that was very valuable. And that's what you're going to do one day. Me? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Joe, do you have anything you want to add to that?
2: I, don't know. I think Eddie pretty much touched on everything. Yeah, it was just really the. uh, Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, it wasn't really direct funding to be spending on the project. It was more just getting knowledge, you know, people that had the experience um, of actually building systems uh, similar to, you know, just space systems in general. um, Being able to, you know, pick their brain and kind of be like, oh, you know, because when you're just in your group, it's out there. And so it almost kind of gets like an echo chamber effect. Where you're like oh yeah that's a really cool design and everyone's like yeah it really is and then you go to somebody and they're like well yeah it's cool but it's almost impossible to manufacture it that way so you, you should look at doing it this way or something like that so i think it's it's definitely helpful even if you can just get knowledge out of it not a, any necessarily just money um, oh, it's definitely and the helpful. other
1: thing that's helpful is that it forces you to have a bunch of deliverables
2: mm-hmm.
1: one on a biweekly basis getting a presentation done And which doesn't mean getting a presentation. It means doing things to put in the presentation. Because otherwise, again, it's you're just a bunch of people in a room. And if there are deadlines, but they're soft deadlines that we're trying to impose on ourselves, and the fact that someone's taking their time out to talk to us about what we've done over the last two weeks uh, is waiting for what we've done, that helps us perform better and more. so that was another very, very helpful thing for all of these things in terms of writing proposals and trying to collaborate. Um, yeah, always sign up. I think in general, that's another thing. Try and sign up for presentations and talks or paper, like writing papers, because all of those things force you to do the work on a schedule because otherwise you can try and make your own, but it's hard to, unless it's a funded program to hold yourself accountable for that as a big team yeah,
0: for sure um yeah no I, I i definitely agree with you i mean even just working on phoenix it's like there's there's so much that goes into these projects that you just you you learn from experience and so talking to people who work in the industry and who can actually give you feedback on what you're doing is it's more valuable than you can even put into words um just because of how you know you don't know what you don't know, and the whole point of these projects is to learn, and so talking with experts is always helps. Let's see. So I think you know for for this interview, we've gone into a, a lot about PPT in terms of you know requirements for design and and what you guys experienced while while testing it and, and iterating on it over the years, um, and how you guys got both funding and feedback in order to improve. Um, we can end this with a, a couple of fun questions. And then um, I don't want to keep you guys here too late. So um, I guess, you know, we've we've talked a a little bit about lessons learned, but if you had to pick, you know, one to, to relay, um, you know, based on your experience with this project, what would you say, you know, is, is one or or maybe a few (laughs) of the biggest lessons that working on PPT has taught you either as a, a person, um, an engineer. Um, so it can be something, you know, more technical or it could be something that's more, you know, related to soft skills and kind of relating back to what we talked about with uh, you know trying to get funding and, and such.
2: Wanna go? Yeah, I would say I would say for me, probably one of the bigger things that I learned Um, was just staying organized and kind of, I guess, making a big to-do list and kind of thinking through the process of, like, what do you need to do and what do I need to do first before I can do the next step? Um, I think that was a really big thing, especially with the vacuum chamber, just knowing, like, yeah, sure, I could try and make sure that the turbo pump works, but if I can't get the chamber down to a low enough pressure, then I can't actually run the turbo pump without damaging it. So just kind of going through and knowing, um, where to go. And then just staying organized. I know at the end, I had printed out all the manuals for the equipment we were using and put it in a big binder. So that way it was readily available for myself and anybody else who might need it. Um, so I think that's definitely helpful. Um, and it, it kind of makes a lot of the other problems you might run into a little bit easier because um, the information's right at your fingertips. So you know what next needs to be done. Okay. All you learn yeah. four years. Okay. That was it. Make big to-do lists.
0: Heck, I mean, that's one of the things Phoenix taught me, so I, I'm I'm very down with that.
2: <laughs> take that, Addy. Okay, where should I take that? It? It's
0: up to you. <laughs>
1: okay. Uh-huh.
0: Surprise us. Oh, I will.
1: <laughs> what did I learn? Um, I think, yeah, I was trying to think of things, and I think one thing is uh, persistence is key and not losing hope and... Um, that's not a obviously a specialized skill, but.
0: No, that's re- no, that's really important.
1: Yeah, and persisting with um, the task that you're trying to do, and also, if you're in charge of anything, then persisting with the other people who are working who you're working with, and um, trying to ensure that, yeah, that they don't lose sight of why we're all doing this in the first place and also trying to get it done on time and trying to get anything done at all. Because yeah, a lot of times you'll see projects start out very strongly and then eventually they'll just lose steam and um, fade off. And there's what's the point of that if you don't finish what you started? So we didn't finish what we, I, at least I started, but I think we got pretty close. And, but there were plenty of times when um, I think, I almost feel like if our core group walked away, even if we trained a bunch of people to do our jobs, they wouldn't finish anything. And yeah. And I think it goes back, back to, um, because this wasn't a funded program or anything. There was no overall deadline and someone asking us to do the do a certain tasks on certain schedules. And so we had to hold ourselves accountable. And people don't want to do that. And so yeah, you have to be persistent. And I don't think I am or was organized myself, but I still got things done. So it's yes, it's very helpful if you can do that. But You don't have to, Um, it's helpful. It's much better if you do, but you don't have to. Um, Yeah. And then the other thing was um, just trying to figure things out and usually you're going to get stuck like a hundred times a day. And that doesn't mean you have to spend the next four days without sleeping, just trying to figure that out because chances are you ask, 11 people and someone has done that before or know something, or even just the task, the act of describing your problem to them can help you. And so, yeah, this is another basic um, skill or whatever practice to ask for help and not be ashamed of asking for help because you shouldn't be ashamed. It's you're all on the team. And even if you're not on the team and you're just doing your own thing, um, yeah, at some point you'll be asked for help and you just pass it forward essentially. And um, yeah, I don't think there's any, yeah, there shouldn't be any shame in asking for help or thinking, oh, like, I don't need to bug them with this because they're busy or, yeah. they. Generally, most people are happy to help and um, yeah, you just have to ask and you will be helped typically, so. Uh, which is not to say try to don't try to solve things on your own, but um, yeah, you should know. I think a limit to how much you should persist on your own, because I don't think there are any. Very rarely are you actually stuck on your own completely without any resources. So use the resources you have. That's another important thing.
0: Yeah, um, I no, I think I think that's a really good thing to mention and that's probably one of the most important things that working on a project like this can teach you um, because that's it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to you know I guess get used to yeah it's
1: useful and um, important I think because otherwise yeah you just lose a lot of time on nothing that you could instead use more productively like it's almost like you feel like if you can do it yourself, then you've learned a lot, but at the end of the day, if you ask someone and then do it, it'll happen much quicker. And all that, the week or whatever you wasted trying to solve this problem, you would instead work with the results of solving that problem. And you still learn tremendously along the way in terms of even describing the problem to someone and trying to get it a an different angle or perspective. And that doesn't mean the other person is just gonna give you the answer. And then that's it, you go away. Uh, they might not have the answer. They might just give you another algorithm or way to approach the problem. And yeah, and then in the future, that, now that's in your toolbox. And um, yeah, you didn't break your head and like lose sleep and get behind on all kinds of stuff. It's now another solution that you can use in the future and when someone asks you for help, you pass that solution along, or at least and try and understand how they even came up with that solution. And on an unrelated note, for example, uh, over the years, I've been trying to do a bunch of programming stuff and I'm not that good at programming, but I have a friend who is, and I just call him up and I described to him my problem on the phone without even showing him any code and he would figure out how to do it and tell me how to do it. And it was because he. Told, I asked him, like, how did you do that? And he said, it's because I've done these kinds of problems hundreds of times for my classes. But now I'm finding that when I'm stuck in a situation, I don't have to call him anymore. I've called him maybe three or four times over the last few years. But now he's shown me, by, just by talking to him, how to approach those problems and solve them. And yeah. So it feels like, oh, I'm not gonna learn if I just ask for the answer. Which can be possible. We make sure you're actually learning how they get the answer so you can figure out how to do the yourself. So, okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think both of those are, are very good things to 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 mention in terms of lessons learned. But as as a final question and on more of a um you know, I, I guess non-serious note, do you guys have one or we've shared a lot of stories, so if, if you don't want to share anymore that's totally fine too um but do you guys have any you know favorite memories or favorite stories from the project that you want to share to end the episode
1: i want to hear joe's (laughs) stories
2: i would say probably um just, just the big thing was just all the i guess you could say quote unquote characters that we met along the way um and just the crazy way that people would act. It's just, you know, meeting different people from all different types of uh, walks of life. For example, when we were interviewing um, new team members, uh, one of them came in. And, you know, he it was the kind of thing where it seemed to me like he had just Googled what to do in an <laughs> interview. And one of the things was ask a question. And so he asked us, you know, have you guys ever thought about designing this around the movement of a fish? And we were just all kind of taken aback, like, well, no, it never crossed our minds. I mean, like, we didn't want to be mean about it, but at the same time, it was kind of like this really has no uh, you know, purpose. Like there's no no reason for us to look into right. fish movement for Did our he design. Really so it? um yeah, just I I don't remember if he really justified it or not, or if it was just like, Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, really, it just kinda was ended like... there.
1: I think he said that you know how fish move through water and create ripples. when the plasma is moving through the air, it creates ripples. and so I think it's a good analogy. All right. And so we said we're going to let you go. This is the catch and release. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it could because it's, it's air. It's, it's a gas moving through air. so it, it could create, depending on the roughness and all that. Um, what speeds you're going, laminar or turbulent flow. And if it's turbulent, then maybe it could create ripples, yeah. But I don't know if it'll be fish-like.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and one last thing I did want to throw in and interject, just in general, I know we've talked a lot about like learning from industry people and scientists and all these kind of people. But I would also say learn from your teammates as well. Um, one big thing that I've taken away from this that I use in my daily life almost every day now that I actually picked up from Addy um, was just pick up the phone and call somebody. Don't just send them an email and wait for like a week. Um, Cause like he was saying earlier, you can end up wasting a week when you could just ask somebody. So yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's a cultural difference or what, but yeah, I would always just send an email and just wait for a response. Whereas you could just pick up the phone, call them mm-hmm. and be done with it in 10 minutes. So, but yeah, just, just different things that, you know, the way people, you know, there's, everybody grew up in a different way, so they have different knowledge. Um, and so, you know, just kind of learn from that, pick it up.
0: Yeah. You know. I like that. I don't, I, yeah, you know, I don't know what it is about email. It's just kind of like, it's easier. I don't know. You Like not having to talk over the phone with somebody and just kind of doing it all. There's, there's a paper trail. I don't know.
2: Or yeah, it's that, that, engineering stereotype of we're just yeah. a antisocial, so we don't want to actually talk to anybody.
0: Yeah, I think that might be it.
1: <laughs> I mean, haven't you seen the Wolf of Wall Street? Pick up the phone and start that dialing. That's how we ram it. <laughs> hmm. um, yeah, I mean, personally, I was used to talking to people on the phone because uh, my mom used to make me call people on the phone at home if we ever needed to call. Um, I don't know, the plumber or something, then she would make me call when I was a kid. And if someone called on we had a landline, if it rang, I was made to pick up the phone and talk to them. And for a brief while she was trying to get funding for um her work. And so then I would help out help her out and call random companies like Go Call people. Yeah, so I was I'm comfortable talking on the phone and yeah and yeah like joe said it's it's obviously much faster and otherwise people can hide behind the email in a way and just say yeah we're not interested or just ignore you completely but at least if you're on the phone you can there's a feedback and you can also um, elaborate more and yeah and also try and be more convincing Mm -hmm. yeah And oh, in terms of fun story, yeah, the the fish story was fun. And then um, when we, okay, so when we went to, we got funding for, I think, five, six of us to go to JPL. And that was just a very fun, memorable trip. And what happened was, this was in the winter of 2018, I think. And um, all of us, or most of us were in Arizona I was actually, uh, I didn't, don't have family here. And so my mom's old boss had invited me to Denver. And so I was there and I got a phone call saying, yeah, the funding has just come through. And because we hadn't got this funding yet in terms of trying to book flights and stuff. And uh, yeah, you need to be in Arizona tomorrow morning um, for the flight because they can't fund you to fly from Denver because there's no like budget justification. And so I, I was learning how to drive outside in, in a parking lot when they call me in the evening. And so quickly went inside and then figured everything out, got a flight to Arizona and then um, got there. And they told us uh, bring all the like your ID and all that stuff. And so I got ready. And then uh, Tyler Lanes picked me up and we headed picked up Omar and then headed to the airport and at this point, our flights were, they told us they were like, this is the flight you're going on and everything, but we didn't have our tickets and we, it wasn't clear if they were booked or not. And so we were waiting in the airport and we were waiting outside. We couldn't go to security because we didn't have tickets. And so I think it was like four in the afternoon. And uh, yeah, so we're still not sure if we're actually flying that day or not, even though everything was set up to be that way and three of them were actually on the road heading to LA at this point because they didn't have funding, including Dr. White and his family. And so we were all supposed to meet them there if everything went through. And I think uh, maybe 5.36, we find out, okay, it's it's going through. But then I realized that I don't have my passport and you need that to get into JPL. So our flight's in an hour and a half, and then uh, we have to go to my house or to my apartment, pick up um, my passport. And then we go through security, everything goes fine. At this point, it's just the three of us, Omar, Tyler and I, uh, Joe is nowhere to be seen and Surya is nowhere to be seen. Those are the other two. And so we're waiting by the gate and I think it's like 30 minutes left and we were quickly having dinner. And then uh, Surya shows up maybe 15 minutes to go And then Joe shows up and I don't know why he, what he was doing, why he took so long. I think he was saying, kept saying there was traffic or something from Phoenix, but like he knew a while ago. So I don't know what he was doing, but eventually we all got on the plane and then we made it there and yeah, it went well, but yeah, it was harrowing for those that day because we had no idea when or how we were going to go and yeah. So
0: that was a fun experience. Oh, Joey called you out there. Are you going <laughs> to are you, are you take that? <laughs> are you going to back it up?
2: So the whole thing, yeah. as he said, it was kind of like just like last second. It was this whole ready fire aim kind of situation mm-hmm. with JPL that like we didn't know if we had a flight. We didn't know if we had lodging on the other end once we landed and all that. And I was basically so I was at my sister's house or her apartment just kind of hanging out there until we got everything approved cuz she lived a lot closer to the airport um, and then yeah they approved everything and we're like okay I'll head over now and as soon as I head over we're about maybe a mile from the airport there's just a massive backup <laughs> for no reason of cars so I have no idea I was about ready to just get out of the car and just start running towards the gate yeah, I think I ended up coming in like it was like they were sitting there and everybody else was getting on the plane. So I, I got got there with maybe oh, like five man. minutes to spare. But
1: so yeah, after all these years, you're still sticking to the story.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just I'm sticking to it. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.
0: Oh, yeah. OK, well, this is this has been really awesome, you guys. I mean, heck, I was a part of SDSL for so long. And I didn't um, there was, you know there's a lot of stuff that i i didn't care. i didn't realize i didn't know about uh PBT. so um yeah no this was this is really cool and i i think like in, in you know in terms of people who may be listening to this is like an incoming student you know you you have no idea what kinds of opportunities that you have at universities um so it's it's really cool to hear you know your guys' perspective in, in uh, trying to start up this project and, and get funding for it and and really take it somewhere, you know, given that you basically did have to start it from the ground up. So I think it's a cool perspective of what people can actually expect or at least seek out in a university.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and stick through it, even when, like a lot of people join projects and leave in a few months because they've been, oh, I can't contribute or I don't know. Or, not going anywhere and even if it's not going anywhere um you can make it go somewhere if you want to and you can do anything and together we can (laughs) change the world (laughs) (laughs) we can do better and yeah so yeah
0: addy for president (laughs) i was born in hawaii all right well this was really cool and and thank you guys so much for you know just taking some time out of your night to just share all of this. Um, so I, I look forward to posting this and, and putting it out there for people to benefit from. And that's all for today's episode of the Art of Space Engineering. If you're interested in diving more into the weeds of the PPT design, a link to the AIAA paper published on the design is included in the episode description. And if you want to hear our conversation about navigating student projects with classes and other commitments, then check out part two of this episode. Thank you all once again for your support of this podcast and space exploration as a whole. I try to post new content on here as often as I can and make episodes that are truly useful to you as well as give you a better insight into how space missions come together. That being said, if you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to shoot me an email or connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find both of those resources in the show description. And if you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who may be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source and on Facebook to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.